If you were taking a stroll down Lakeview Avenue in St. Petersburg, Florida, an early evening, Thursday, March 31st, 1955, the warm breeze carried the sound of a new unexpected guest. The fiddle being played belongs to legendary violinist Christian Kirsch. On cello, Jared Haft, a member of Florida's Philharmonic Orchestra. The flutist is Charlotte Snell. Victor Raymond is playing double bass. And the beautiful voice is soprano Rose Zocano. Ten years after the end of the Second World War, the burgeoning rhythm of rock and roll has yet to permeate every corner of the country, and classical orchestras are still wildly dominant in the musical landscape. Times are about to change. The second most popular song that year was Bill Haley and the Comets Rock Around the Clock Tonight. What makes this beautiful walk down Lakeview Avenue unique on that specific evening is the opening of a musical institute, not in Paris, Berlin, or Vienna, but in an area that has almost no musical history of any kind. The man who is opening it, on the other hand, wants to change that. Let me tell you about the music you are hearing. Rigoletto is an opera written by Verdi. It's a story of love, betrayal, curses. Its most famous song being La Donna Mobile, which we all know. Rose Zucano and Jarrah Haft would often perform it together at different venues, but tonight they are performing in a packed house that celebrates the opening of Cremona Hall. For those who've spent some time in the world of classical music, Cremona, a small Italian town a short distance from Milan, is well known. The place where Antonio Stradivari created his legendary masterpiece violins, the famed Stradivarius. Cremona is to violin-making what New York is to the world of finance. It is everything on every level. The place known as Cremona Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida, throughout the mid-50s all the way to 1970, was an academy, concert hall, and instrument shop that was the dream and vision of one Adam Zemansky. The year is 2016, a cold February morning. For the past seven years of my life, I have worked in the automobile industry in various roles. I have just quit my job, a job I really hated. But at the age of 35, I feel like I need some perspective on the direction of my career. I married in August. My wife, a medical resident in ophthalmology, was also having problems at work. And easy to say that my quitting my job had caused some tensions at home. I found an occupation to make the days go by. I spend my days going around thrift stores and antique shops, looking for vinyls and records of all types. Once home in the afternoon, a steady routine of shipping and posting on eBay has allowed me to bring in enough to cover bills and rent. 
The truth is that I miss the work environment, especially the social part. And years of working in an office make spending the day at home boring. A call comes in. It's my neighbor Ezra, who I had met a few months back. He had read a sign I put in the washing machine shared room on our floor. The sign said that I was looking to buy old books and vinyls. Ezra informs me of an estate sale in a nearby building and asks if I want to help move out stuff he bought the previous day. We give each other a rendezvous and meet there in the early afternoon. The first thing I notice are old striped cardboard boxes that litter the place. There is a pile of ornate old furniture in the lobby and a collection of dusty and stained lampshades. I also notice a few porcelain figurines and old cotton canvases, but my enthusiasm has died down a fair bit. Musically, I'm always looking for kinks, records, old Sonic Youth, or anything that fills the no-wave New York CBGB scene that I'm so fond of. The reason I landed in the car business was failing to succeed in music. Having not known any commercial success in my artistic life, I decided to fall back on obscure independent artists in a sort of rebellion against a world that had rejected me. The apartment Ezra has brought me to was full of old classic records and a few Engelbert Humperdinks, but nothing special as far as my tastes were concerned. I noticed an elderly lady sitting at the head of a long dining room table. She looks up at me, her dark blue eyes fixed intently. My husband was as tall as you. You may want to look in his closet for suits. You could find something that fits you, she says with a strong voice. Being 6'3 and some, I had issues finding properly fitting clothes. I decide to give it a shot. Who knows, I might find something. I'm pushing hangers aside, digging through a collection of pastel green suits and beige smoking jackets. And in the sea of fabric imprisoned by static and the smell of aquavel, I dully realize that most of these suits must have been from the 70s and 80s, shoulder pads and colors giving them away. But a red tuxedo catches my eye. So I pull it out, and that's when a dark box slides down from among the clothes to rest at my feet. I look down, I know right away that this is for carrying a musical instrument, a flute or a trumpet, almost like a small coffin. Oh my God, I think. I hope it's not a coffin. I pick up the small case and unclip it open. A scarlet red violin. To say I know nothing about violins is an understatement. I am an avid guitarist with a passion for old brands like Fender, PRS, and Gibson. Basically the classic American electric guitars that pros like to play. Violins to me are like rotary phones, an instrument whose relevancy belongs to another time and another place that I am not interested in visiting, especially at this time in my life. I tilt the red violin to let some light into the F-hole. The words I see through it are stamped in a dark ink. They read, Giovanni Paolo Magini. Hmm, sounds Italian. There is one violin I do know about with an Italian name, and that is the famous Stradivarius, 
I know that strads, as they are known, have labels on the inside that attest for their maker and origin. I immediately assume that this is probably another maker and worth a ton of money. I mean, it isn't a Stradivarius, but it is Italian and it looks old. I notice another label deeply recessed inside, but can't make out the words. I go back to Ezra asking the lady if I can get a price on the violin. Not for sale, she says with a strong but shaking voice, anger in every letter. Her reserved voice has now gone from a soft West Island English to a strong Hungarian or German accent. Ezra looks at me and says, give her a couple of days. I leave the apartment with the red tuxedo and two Pavarotti vinyls in which she is dressed like a clown on the cover. A few days later, the violin still on my mind, I call Ezra to know if there are any items available at the estate sale we could revisit. I am also interested in a few Fausto Papetti records I saw, but the phone number we have doesn't pick up. He tries to call the estate sale manager as well, but to no avail. I decide to pass by the building where it took place and notice on my arrival a mound of those peculiar striped cardboard boxes near the recycling disposal area. The doorman approaches me and tells me I'm too late. The vultures have passed. As I am about to turn my back, I notice a black wooden shadow under a pile of cut cardboard boxes that are pushed against a tree. It's the violin case. I put my hand around the wet wooden handle, pick it up, and head home. The year is 1916. Adam is a 23 years young Berlin resident, married with three children. A letter informs him that he has been drafted for war and will join the front of the Kaiser's army where he has qualified as an engineer. He dearly hopes he will survive the war to see another summer. As a boy, he would spend his days pressing his nose against the windows of violin shops in Berlin and Potsdam. His strategy back then was to do it long enough until the shop owner, tired of seeing his display window fogged over by this little man, invited him in. When he was 13 years old, his family home was full of children. His favorites were his brother, Albert, his cousin, Johannes, and the twins, Paul and Franz, also his cousins. They spent long Saturday afternoons playing any kind of music they could dream of, with anything they could get their hands on. Violins, mandolins, even combs served as instruments. His family adored violins, 
and had been profoundly involved in their making, especially his uncle. Uncle Heinrich was a legendary maker, a master from the renowned Berlin School of Violin. In 1910, when Adam turned 18, he backpacked across Europe, a tradition most teenagers do as a coming-of-age ritual. Adam's fondest memories were the walks by restaurants in Austria and Hungary, listening to gypsies play violin till the small hours of the morning. When he returned to Potsdam, an accident would leave him hospitalized for 16 months, afflicted with an eye injury. That long stay in hospital would put enormous financial strain on his family. Upon his recovery to help them out, he studied engineering and spent time with Heinrich and Albert, violin-making and his uncle's secret art of varnishes, something violin-makers are notorious for. Even Stradivarius had his own secret formula, and improving on his own violin-varnish formula in his brother's carpentry shop. As a boy, Adam had been called a violin prodigy. But like most young German adults between 1914 and 1918, he stood anxious and patient for the glory of battle that lay ahead. Despite still having some difficulty with his eyesight, he managed to pass the army physicals, and it was only a matter of time until he saw the front. War didn't treat Adam kindly. It is said that almost 65% of the German army is considered a casualty in World War I. Seven million soldiers wounded or killed. Adam would be hospitalized with a shattered forearm and additional damage to his eye, probably from stress aggravating a cataract. His arm injury and diminished eyesight had made playing and making violins his passion and what he imagined was his future, impossible. When Adam was discharged at the end of the war, he was not the same man. Disillusioned with the state of politics in Germany, inflation, and the horrible post-war conditions, he decided to move to the United States. He was told there was a need for engineers, but he moved alone first in 1923. His family staying in Germany hoping he would find success before taking them all there. The war had been over for five years, and this was a new battle for him.
I have just arrived home and put the violin down on my kitchen table. After boiling some water to make myself some tea, I opened the box to have a closer look at the dark red violin. The first thought that goes through my mind is broken. The violin is worn down and has a fair bit of residue on top of it. The tailpiece is missing a screw and the wooden bridge that props the strings up is also gone. Feeling around the violin, I can sense a small separation on the side and the tuning pegs are almost frozen in place. I spend a lot of time on Google trying to figure out who Giovanni Paolo Magini is. The Wikipedia entry describes a Magini violin as such. Magini's early violin, or Magini, are now considered very desirable because despite their apparent naive craftsmanship, they are wonderful instruments. They first tended to be modified copies of his teacher's instrument, but once established on his own, around the year 1606, Magini developed his skills and experimented with his designs until he achieved a level of expertise that is still highly regarded. His violas, like those of his master, are regarded as the best in the world for the rich, deep sound and powerful tone. Did I have a real Magini? Keep in mind, at this point, I know close to nothing about violence. I do not know that there are factory-made copies or that violin makers stamp whatever violin template they use with the name of the original maker. I am like one of those people on Yahoo Answers with the countless, I found this old guitar in my grandpa's garage that says Sears on it. Is it worth anything? You have factories that nowadays stamp Stradivarius, Magini, or Del Gesù, among other templates on their violins, to signify that the violin you are playing was copied from a Stradivarius, or an Ari Del Gesù, or a Magini copy. I did not know any of this, but here is what I found out pretty quickly. Magini modeled violins are not popular violins in modern times. They are a bit longer than, let's say, a classic Stradivarius template, and because of that, do not sound like typical violins. After about half an hour on Google and a phone call to a friend who I thought was going to tell me that I had just become a multimillionaire, anyhow, well, old, vi old Italian violins fetch fortunes at auction, I have now realized that what I do have in my possession is an old, probably factory-made German, worn-down, recent copy of a seemingly pretty unpopular violin. Crap, I say. Worthless was what I thought. I put down the violin and figured that although it's unplayable, it would be a nice addition to my little homemade recording studio. That can wait, though, as I have a busy evening. I pick up my wife from work that night. She has had a bad day. Not only had the clinic at the hospital been forced to accept patients way after its closing time, but she was on call and her pager hadn't stopped ringing in its high pitch, almost fire alarm-like tone. One of her attending staff had made sure the day would be held by arguing with a doctor from another department. This had made the environment at work and in the car at that moment incredibly tense. 
My being out of work and living a hipster, worry-free life of vinyl collecting at 35 years old was not the best for after-work talk and couple dynamics. I would usually stay quiet for a bit, hoping the mood would lighten up. We had decided to start watching The Office on Netflix, and I knew that usually after a light dinner, she would fall asleep until the pager would ring, forcing her to run back to the hospital at all times of the night. The life of a year two medical resident is pure hell. I made up for that by driving her back and forth every day to make sure she wouldn't have to take a taxi or a bus. That ensured that she wouldn't feel alone in her struggle with residency. My wife is a brilliant physician. No, really, I'm not, I'm not just saying that because she's my wife. But her good work meant a crude responsibility. And there is a sharp contrast between the lifestyles we have chosen since we met. I, of course, like to think it keeps things interesting. When the pager rang at two in the morning with an emergency doctor telling her she had to come to, to see a patient, I quickly got dressed and grabbed the book so I could keep myself busy for an hour or so she would be at the hospital. The book I grabbed after a quick run through my bookcase was Albert Einstein's biography, which I had been reading on and off for the last few years. Einstein had been an avid, if amateurish, violinist, so might as well get into the spirit of things. After dropping off the wife, I pushed back my seat and relaxed, deciding to fast forward to the chapter on Einstein's passion with violin. An interesting note about Einstein is not only his love of the instrument, but the fact that although he wasn't a gifted technical player, his play was said to be emotional and intense. To quote a friend of Einstein, there are many musicians with much better technique, but none, I believe, who ever played with more sincerity or deeper feeling than Albert Einstein. This stuck to me. After a while of randomly Googling violins on my phone in pure boredom, Einstein had several labels pinned to him. Womanizer, genius, charismatic, but of course brilliant violinist, he was not. I get a quick memory flash, remember the second less accessible lab label I saw inside the violin. When I initially found it in the closet, I made a mental note to check back on it when I got home. The following morning, after dropping my wife at work, I trained my myopic eyes on the red violin. I managed to barely make out the label as it was located deep inside the F hole. I took out my DSLR camera, loaded a macro lens, and tried to angle it towards the label with my tripod. Success! The label read the following. Acoustic baseball bat. No, that can't be right. I got a little air spray and tried again. Acoustic base bar, pat pending, a few numbers I couldn't make out. August 21, 1959, Adam Zemanski, Lakeview Avenue, and an address in St. Petersburg, Florida. I call up my friend to see if violins usually have patent numbers inside them. The answer is no. Then again, why is there a 60-year-old patent number Inside a Magini violin, who the hell is Adam Zemanski? Was that the address of the factory where the violin was made? I Google Adam Zemanski, 
and a succession of keywords like violin, St. Petersburg, factory, nothing. And by nothing, I mean not a single hit on him and his violins. I find other Adam Zemanskis, but they were born after 1950, so there was no way a nine-year-old could have patented a violin bass bar in the 50s and there had been nothing on the World Wide Web about it. I decided to try Google's patent search feature on the bass bar and finally got my first hit. The patent information itself is pretty complex to understand. Added to that, it was clearly written by someone with a complex and strange command of the English language. A little bit in the same way Shakespearean actors do. I, I had read patent submissions before, but this, seemed, this one seemed straight out of Dr. Strangelove. Actually, it read exactly like Dr. Strangelove. Here's what I mean. Now, be, before I get to reading to you guys the Zemanski patent, the first thing I'm going to read is a patent by Mario Macaferri for a plastic violin. You will know that all, although it, it is very technical, it's pretty standard stuff and describes the invention, well, which is a plastic violin, pretty clearly. Here it goes. A plastic violin is provided which means, with means for compensating for change of tension in the violin strings due to dimensional instability of the plastic caused by variations in temperature or pressure. The plastic violin comprises an elongated bar below the fingerboard and is bonded thereto. An elongated stabilizing bar is placed in the hollow portion of the violin and has a proximal end which reaches an upright portion or indentation in the reinforcing bar and a distal end which is received by a threaded compensating screw which is manipulable to bias the proximal end of the stabilizing bar against the surface of the indented upright portion of the reinforcing bar. Now, as you guys can see, that this is pretty uh, technical. It's, it's clearly engineering tug, but this is a patent that shares a date with the other patent that I'm about to read. So I hope you guys get a, a real idea of how much a contract this is. So the second thing I'm going to read here is Zemanski's patent. It, it is for a small piece, not, not a violin, a small piece of wood called a bass bar. Here we go. Painstaking craftsmanship on the part of old masters, such as Stradivarius, achieved remarkable tonal qualities in violins, gaining for these persons immortal reverence by lovers of music. However, in the period up to and including 1873, the higher or upper range from 5th to 10th position on the violin was seldom used. This upper range being employed almost exclusively by virtuosos or soloists since 1873, two factors in the playing of violin have emerged. First, the upper range of the violin requires a powerful tone to be effective came to vogue as more and more musical compositions demanded that the violin be played in its upper range. Secondly, larger orchestrations relying upon increasing numbers of woodwind and brass instruments became popular. The combination of these two factors placed increasing emphasis on forceful and powerful playing of the violin in its upper range. Today, a violinist, when performing with a heavy orchestration, must play his violin forcefully in its upper range, sometimes giving rise to a disastrous tonal collapse. 
even in violins heaven crafted by the old masters, the new and stringent demands of maintaining the tonal quality of the violin when it's played with power in its upper range have not been met with the consequent result of tonal collapse of the violin in its upper range. Attempts of all types to surmount this two-pronged problem for producing smooth tonal qualities throughout the range of violin have fallen short. Such attempts have included the utilization of bass bars having varying shapes and violins. However, these attempts have proved to be unsatisfactory. The violins produced thereby having discordant tonal qualities at one or more points in the range or scale of tones produced from the violins. Now, the whole text is, is much longer and reads like, like a mad scientist talking about his universe-altering invention. I mean... The words tonal collapse, especially, which I have never encountered, make me, you know, make me laugh, like make me snicker a little bit. But I have to say, this guy has balls. I, I mean, and if we resume what he's saying, what, what he's actually trying to get across is that the bass bar that he's patented has revolutionized violin making and automatically makes every prior violin and concert performance, mind you, complete garbage. Or to use his words... It is an objective of the present invention to provide an improved bass bar in a stringed musical instrument of the viol class, wherein the tone travel through the upper and lower bouts of the sound box for the stringed musical instruments is correlated to arrive at the sound holes simultaneously so as to produce undistorted tonal qualities for the stringed musical instrument throughout its range of tones. It is another object of this invention to provide an improved bass bar for a string musical instrument of the viol class. The bass bar comprising an elongated bing having an upper surface conforming to the internal surface of the belly member for the sound box of the string musical instrument and attached thereto. And a protuberance medially located on the beam beneath the left foot of the bridge of the instrument. The protuberance providing a region of increased thickness in the depth along the longitudinal extent of the beam, the greater portion of which is disposed in the lower bout of the instruments to produce improved tonal qualities in the stringed musical instrument when played forcefully in its upper range. After reading the patent about a dozen times, I finally decide that this whole Zemansky affair was something worthy of exploration. I mean, fine, there was a 99.99% chance at this point I didn't have a multi- million dollar violin but clearly i had something that deserved looking into i mean if anything to create a wikipedia entry for this guy before going any further i would make a small trip to the maison du violon in montreal a world famous luthier that worked on and created violins of amazing quality i found a place after calling my violinist friend she told me that the professionals there would make the best assessment possible of the violin and put it in working order very quickly. I packed the violin and headed out on another cold February morning.
Adam arrived alone in America, in the Gatsby-esque prosperous 1920s. Trained as an engineer, his first stop was the city of Detroit in the state of Michigan, specifically an area where Hungarian and German immigrants settled, a small neighborhood called Delray. The car and tooling industry was booming, with the wild 20s in full swing. He quickly found a job with the American Radiator Company and found a way to complement his small pay by locating old violins in pawn shops and rehauling them to sell at a profit. The first one, with only 35 cents in his pocket, he bought for $10 on consignment and promptly sold for $200. By 1925, he had put aside enough money to bring his family And in 1929, only six years after arriving, he opened a parts supply store called Adams Auto Parts. When 1937 rolled in, prosperity had returned and his business was in full swing. He made an investment into a small Detroit music shop he renamed the Adams House of Music, a play on his name in Detroit's famed Adams Theater, and then spent a part of his free time working on any violin he could get his hands on. In 1941, with the Second World War in full swing, Adam's universe was visited by an unthinkable tragedy. His wife passed away. He was completely devastated. For three years, he wouldn't talk to anyone, see anyone. He became a complete hermit, shutting down from society and work. His sadness was so complete that he soured to music and shut it out of his life completely. He had vowed to himself that happiness would never be a companion to him. In 1944, with the war winding down, he finally started emerging from his home. He would go on and meet Nona. He was 52 by then. They married, and she would become the catalyst of a return to his roots, his second life. When the 1950s came along, Adam's deteriorating vision had come to the point where he had despaired on any improvement. He would retire completely blind. But all this changed when one of his doctors informed him about a new type of surgery that a famous Dr. Forbes had pioneered in Tampa, Florida. Adam, apprehensive, but with the prospect of complete blindness on the horizon and his whole world disappearing, underwent the procedure and for the first time since his early childhood, recovered his vision completely. He was so ecstatic at this new lease on life that he moved to St. Petersburg to be close to Dr. Forbes, and upon arriving and settling down, he decided on undertaking a new project. As an ode to the old world, he had left behind his family and roots. The idea was to create a music conservatory, that would include teaching, performance, instrument assembly and repair. Although Adam was in his late 50s, he took on this ambitious project of creating this institute that he would call Cremona Hall. Planning for Cremona Hall would be complex. St. Petersburg had no musical legacy, stores or institutions of any kind. Florida had a philharmonic orchestra, but creating an association with them would prove difficult. Now keep in mind, at that time, post-war America was still in the early burgeoning stages of rock and roll. The sound waves are still filled with full instrumental orchestras, Sinatra and Bing Cosby, 
Adam's project of bringing old world music to the new world is a pipe dream in many ways. But this is not an unfamiliar undertaking for him. He knew all about starting over and had an ace in his pocket now that his vision was back. The countless hours he spent as a youth building violins in his uncle's shop. The Zemansky legacy of uh, instrument makers is part of the rich 400-year-old history of violin making in Berlin. From Elias Zemansky in 1730 to his uncle and cousins in the 20th century, Adam knows that in his old age he will probably be making the last of those violins, as none of his children have taken to the art and nothing remains of his family and their entrepreneurship after the war. In 1955, Adam opened Cremona Hall, a magnificent little place with metal fences and windows in the shape of violins. The event was recorded in local newspapers as groundbreaking and prestigious for an area that had never seen anything like it. For Adam, it was a note to his family. Maison du Violon in Montreal, and I'm greeted by Thierry, a young luthier whose attention is firmly focused on a small collection of accessories he has just received. We briefly discuss his shop, which is recessed in a Montreal Plateau duplex. I see violins hanging everywhere, and the smell of varnish and wood dust is absolutely delightful. I open my violin case to show Thierry the violin. He removes it carefully and looks attentively at it. Mignon, he says in French, with a careful optimism. He tells me he is used to working on Chinese-made student violins and that the handmade variety have become an unusual sight within his store. The violin at first glance looks structurally sound, but he decided to take it to his workbench and have a closer look at the whole instrument. Right away, he notices a bump on the fingerboard, which will require some evening out. Initially, no ungluing is evident, but he finds some on the upper part of the violin, and needless to say, that once his inspection is done, it is obvious that, aside from a new bridge, the violin will require a fair amount of work. Two weeks, he tells me, 
and I take one last glance at the violin before returning to my snow boots and the slushy weather outside. In the meantime, good news have come along. I have found a job and things are looking up. I'm excited at home like a good luck charm. That evening, things are back to normal. A new staff doctor has started helping my wife feel more comfortable and the atmosphere is better. My wife is still thinking of changing programs, but her mood has drastically improved. We go out to eat at a restaurant that night and I finally tell her about the violin. The discussion is brief. She mentions that it is something she has always wished to learn. I come from a family of deep musical background myself. My father plays guitar and so does my brother. My mother has a wonderful singing voice, so holidays were always musical in my house. My wife, despite both her parents being doctors, also comes from a rich musical background in Tajikistan, where her family comes from. She has an uncle in New York called Yudik, who is a violin teacher, and her family was showbiz royalty in the ex-USSR. That night, the pager doesn't ring. She sleeps soundly. My research on Adam Zemansky and his violins picked up the next day at the Montreal Public Library of Côte de Neige. I had discovered a wealth of information on violins, more specifically early century German violins. Some facts still escaped me, but the knowledge gap that allowed me to identify my violin and its builder was closing. A stream of microfiche from a newspaper distributor in southern Florida had started painting a narrative on Adam Zemansky. The first thing I found were what I could best describe as small ads placed in the local press. Ads were dated to the late 60s, and they were pleased by this very strange man for violinists to put less emphasis on dexterity and more on emotion in their playing. This Einsteinian philosophy was something to be expected from an amateur, but from what was a professional violin maker, a bit surprising. Zemansky published several of these snippets as a plea to the universe that would not answer him. Another article I found was from a resident of St. Petersburg whose son had wanted a toy machine gun for Christmas. She talks about driving to Zemansky's shop and him offering a violin for her son, insisting that he learn no songs, but is brought to him so that he can teach the kid the right way to learn violin. Zemansky says, no violinist has ever grown up to be a thief or murderer. They may connive a bit, but that's where it stops. I was finding small excerpts from newspapers that almost turned to dust. That's where I found the Fred Wright article. Fred Wright is a local South Florida journalist who in the later 60s wrote a piece on Zemansky. By that time, Adam is no longer making his violins but importing them from Germany disassembling them, rehauling them, and refinishing them before selling it. He has gained a national reputation and discusses his philosophy, his family back in Germany, his life and hope for humanity going forward. There is a sense of hope and sadness that reverberate in Zemansky's word, but one cannot escape the feeling of reading the story of a man who feels that the world and its Cold War reality has completely disappointed him. The article is titled, Shouting in the Wind, it's a beautiful read, so here it is. His fingers and arms, crippled by a war, cradled the violin. I can't play very well anymore, he says, and the tones are born magically from the bow as the strings sing improvised rhythm and harmony. Adam Zemansky makes violins. He finishes them and refinishes them, and when he's through, 
The only true musical instrument is an extension of his soul. He is an import from Germany, 1924 vintage, a good year. The 74-year-old man speaks with an accent that rings of the old country and stands in his shop surrounded by rows and rows of violins hanging in racks and cases like a gun collector's holiday. Simple, traditional-looking violins, this smiling-eyed musician has made are perhaps as perfect as humanly possible. He is something right out of the Brothers Grimm, with his white hair soft and flowing, cresting a wrinkled, smiling face with eyes that look so intently at you. And Zemansky is a concerned man, whose worries go through and beyond the world's collective fears of population explosions and nuclear death. He sees death in the genre of music, witnessing new generations of musicians who know the techniques but not the feeling of music. This man whose life has touched on years as an engineer and who has seen blindness gradually shroud his eyesight, only to be cut away miraculously under a surgeon's knife, feels another creeping darkness in the world of music. He is a man shouting in the wilderness. He wants to tell the world, warn the world, warn the world that today's musicians have only manual dexterity, but not the sense nor the soul of music. He pleads for the world to realize the value of improving the quality of man and not the quality of material things. And his voice, quiet like wind through trees, appeals to mankind that music is the soul and not of the fingers. Zemansky is one man shouting into a windstorm. He sometimes feels, and with these violins and the method of treating and restoring them known only to him, tries to extend his voice to the world. The violin is the tool for awakening the human being, his subconscious, Zemansky exclaimed. And herein lies the purpose behind his life. After coming to the United States in 1924 from his native Potsdam, Germany, Zemansky turned to engineering for a living and a successful one. But his earlier life in Germany and the taste of the art of violin playing and making stayed with him. Faced with a growing need to return to the art and his eyesight failing continually, he moved to St. Petersburg and a new life. His shop he named Cremona Hall after the own in Italy where Antonio Stradivari, the greatest violin maker of all time, lived. Here he struggles to revive the art and heart of the violin that died with Stradivari. It is at Cremona Hall that Zemansky uses his own special finish on the violins he serves, a varnish that he discovered and uses to steer to life a unique quality of tone in every instrument he touches. Appropriately, Cremona Hall bears an inscription that echoes so purely Zemansky's master plan of music and life, an inscription from another man from another time. I lived in a forest. I had to die to sing. The inscription refers to trees which must die to be made into living and singing violins. Zemansky's violins are like this, unborn babies waiting to communicate their parents to their parents, emotion and thought into music, merely asking to be cradled and then silenced. Zemansky came here in 1954, opened his Cremona Hall at 5416 Gulfport Boulevard, and has since eked out a life of prosperous in satisfaction and fulfillment where he revives and instills new life in violins, cellos, basses, and bows. 
His fame and customers stretch around the country and his personality warms his three-room shop. I go from facts, not dreams, he corrects. I am a man of destiny. How destiny will treat Zemanski is uncertain. His secret of the perfect violin, his revived formula for his golden hue, varnish that mellows with age may die with him, but his violins and his words will live on. And if he succeeds in convincing one musician to play what he feels and interprets rather than what he has learned, Zemanski will be that much more a successful man. I finished reading the article, my face red with emotion, thinking about my wife in ophthalmology, and most strikingly, my life, like, I, like Zemanski and the automobile business. Before landing there, coming out of school, I had worked in several engineering firms until the collapse of local gigantic firm called Nortel. Zemanski's story rang so familiar that I felt the universe's karmic weight on my shoulders. After two days of digging through every source I could on Zemanski and his violins, one thing that I had been sure of is that history had completely forgotten about him. No webpage, no luthier, no one spoke of Zemanski or his family's violins, yet for a few centuries they had been celebrated among Germany's best makers. The articles I managed to find with so much difficulty were giving me an amazing insight into this man's cure of near blindness and his golden age and his golden years. I found pictures of violins by Heinrich and his sons ranging from 1908 to 1944 from a guide celebrating the 400 years of Berlin's violins in 2015. The resemblance to my violin uh, when I saw one of Johannes Oskar Zemanski's violas, specifically the varnish and finish, was uh, almost frightening. I told my wife about the article that night. She encouraged me to dig further, to give Zemanski a voice. In a sense, ophthalmology had given Zemanski his life back. It was only fair that the husband of, of an ophthalmologist give him a name in the 21st century. That night, I must have sent three dozen emails from the new owners of Cremona Hall's uh, old address to the Berlin Museum as a service uh, to a service that helps locate uh, obituaries so I could maybe track down Adam Zemanski's relatives. Even Fred Wright himself had written uh, the article in the Evening Independent. Uh, the pager only rang uh, once that night, but it was a mistake by the hospitals locating, thank God. So back to Cremona Hall, uh, this time around 1969. So Cremona Hall actually had had some success early on, but the music tastes were obviously changing in America. Popular music was about guitars and drums. Violins weren't the rave that children and youth yearned for. If anything, it was completely out of style. And Adam's bustling shop was increasingly less occupied, uh, but repairs and the reputations of his violins managed to keep the place afloat. His wife, Nona, helped with administrative work, uh, but this was the world of Hendrix and guitar licks. Uh, Adam would often stay up at night uh, playing violin and old, uh, alone to an old uh, gypsy music records book. But like uh, Steven, Zweig, uh, Steven Zweig's famous book, his world was gone, replaced by policies of mutual assured destruction and, and an ending war in Vietnam by that, those days. Adam had stopped benchmaking violins and started importing them from Germany to refinish and install his patented ba bass bar, which he was very proud of. 
He found his, the process at his age too hard, and at 70 years old, his focus had shifted to mainly repair work and teaching to the odd student. Adam's three daughters, Alice, Ellie, and Lucy, would come and visit from Michigan once in a blue moon. And in the 70s, that were right around the corner with a new decade, the hope that the, Adam really lived in the hope that uh, love of the violin would return. But like Fred Wright would say in his article, he was one man shouting in the wilderness in a time where the world had turned away. Adam had suffered a stroke in 1970. Beth Caffrey from the Independent Reporter newspaper writes the following. For years and years, Adam Zemanski has made violins and friends at Cremona Hall on Tangerine Avenue. I know you've noticed the quaint little building almost covered with iron grill Adam made and put together himself. There's an outside gazebo next to Cremona Hall, which is made more picturesque by wrought iron, violins, and music motifs of the meaningful sort. Driving by, you turn your head and wonder at the loving time and vault to make it. If you've ever stopped to go into, in to talk to Adam Zemanski, you've spent a half hour and sometimes longer, but in exchange for the time you've met an individual, with ideals and thoughts and principles and such warmth, you never forget him. He was born in Germany and was a player of violins. Using energy from his soul, he tells you to make the music necessary. He lived through the World War I, but ended with an injured arm. He could not play as well as he needed to play, but he could not bear to leave his violins, so made them instead. He left Europe, came to America, married happily to his nonna, and has been there on Tangerine, gluing together old and new violins while all the time talking to people or taking the extra time to show a little boy how to tuck a violin under his chin. On Easter Sunday, Adam was taken to the Palms of Pasadena after having a stroke. Uh, Palms of Pasadena is a hospital. Now all of his friends are hoping he can be repaired as well as he repaired his violins. Adam passed a few days later. The phone rang a few weeks after I started compiling Zemanski's story. My entire life had become absorbed by this, but I still found time to go hunt for vinyls left and right. The voice on the phone had a heavy German accent. A luthier from Berlin had found one of my posts on the forum and decided to fill in the story of Adam. Adam had very likely been the nephew of famed luthier Heinrich Zemanski. The name itself, Zemanski, was well known in Germany, but had Googled, but had I Googled Szymanski Geige, which is the German word for violin, I would have found tons of resources on the family and the historical legacy of their violin making. I was told the story of Berlin School of Violin Making, Zemanski being a Jewish and Polish name which translated as son of Simon. It was likely his entire family, or most of it, had been wiped out during the Holocaust, which is curious because Adam's obituary identifies him as uh, Lutheran, known as a Methodist. The Holocaust database notes over a thousand victims with the Zemanski family name, but this is uh, evidently very hard to track due to the lack of information. I wouldn't be surprised if someone found truth related to this, but until then, it's pure speculation pretty much on my behalf. Zemanski and his life after arriving in the USA and moving his family in the 20s never returned to Germany. 
the luthier uh, spoke for a few hours with me. The discussion ranged from, ranged from what I had discovered about Adam to what his family in Germany had been up to when he left. He had found pictures of Albert Zemanski's carpentry shop where Adam had practiced his uh, varnishing formula. I was amazed he also forwarded pictures of Zemanski violins. Sadly, all this made me realize that the Zemanski legacy of violin making had stopped with Adam and he was the last uh, traceable Zemanski luthier. The red violin I had found in the garbage was more than just a violin. It was seemingly the last link in a chain that had spanned three centuries. I took a deep breath and uh, hung up the phone. There is one last long article that discusses Adam. It was written by Marion Knott in 1969, a few months before Adam passed away. It ends with the following words. And once in a while nowadays, but not too often, a young man or woman or boy or girl will come into his shop. I say to them, you are interested in a violin? I am Adam. Thanks for letting me in.